0: The House and the Senate both return Monday and will stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House came to work on Tuesday And voted to pass three bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 302, the Preventing a Patronage System Act, H.R. 2988, the Whistleblower Protection Improvement Act, and H.R. 8326, the Ensuring a Fair and Accurate Census Act. Then the House took up and passed another four bills under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 302, the Preventing a Patronage System Act. The bill passed by a vote of 225 to 204. Then the House took up H.R. 8326, the Ensuring a Fair and Accurate Census Act. That bill passed by a vote of 220 to 208. Finally, the House took up H.R. 2988, the Whistleblower Protection Act. That bill passed by a vote of 221 to 203, and then they were done. This week in the House, they'll return Monday with the first vote scheduled for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up no fewer than 26 bills under suspension of the rules. Beyond that, the House schedule is uncertain. Majority Leader Hoyer says the House could consider a bill offered by Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California and Liz Cheney of Wyoming to reform the Electoral Count Act. That bill, which has yet to be formally introduced, is called the Presidential Election Reform Act. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Finally, there could be consideration in the House of a continuing resolution to keep the government open beyond the end of the fiscal year on September 30, which happens to be a week from Friday. So we'll speak more about that in a moment as well. Last week in the Senate, they came back to work on Monday and voted to confirm Salvador Mendoza to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Ariana J. Freeman to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Later that evening, Leader Schumer used Rule 14 to bypass committee consideration and directly add S. 4822, the Disclose Act. To the Senate calendar. That means uh, Rule 14 means he can bring it straight to the floor after bypassing committee jurisdiction. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to, wait for it, reject the nomination of Ariana J. Freeman by a vote of 48 to 49 because there were two Democrats missing, Tammy Duckworth of Illinois and Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire. Consequently, Leader Schumer switched his vote from I to nay so he could officially join the minor- the, the majority which would put him in a position to offer a motion to reconsider, so he can bring the nomination back up when he thinks he's got the right number of Democrats to get it voted through. Consequently, the recorded vote went down as failure by 47-50, to with Schumer on the winning side with all the Republicans. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Laura E. Montecalvo to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the First Circuit Court of Appeals. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Sarah A. L. Merriam to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Then by voice vote, the Senate confirmed Bruce I. Turner to the rank of Ambassador during the tenure of his service as the U.S. Representative to the Conference on Disarmament. E. Martin Estrada to be U.S. Attorney for the Central District of California for the term of four years and Gregory J. Hanstead to be U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Wisconsin for the term of four years. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Sarah A. L. Merriam to be Circuit Judge for the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Then the Senate voted to confirm David P. Pekoski to be the Administrator of the Transportation Safety Administration. Then, by voice vote, the Senate confirmed Travis LeBlanc to be a member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board for a term expiring January 29, 2028. Richard E. DeZino to be a member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board for the remainder of the term, expiring January 29, 2023. And Shafali Razdan Dugal to be U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of the Netherlands. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on something that I don't know what it is because it hasn't been set on the calendar yet. Now to the January 6th Committee. Speaking to reporters last Tuesday, House January 6th Committee Chairman, Democrat Benny Thompson, said it was his goal to restart public hearings again on September 28th, that's a week from Wednesday. Then, if all goes according to plan, the Committee would put together an interim report two weeks after that hearing in mid-October, conveniently two weeks before the election and finalize it by the end of the year. We sunset at the end of December, he said. The committee still wants to interview former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, former Vice President Mike Pence, and Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. In addition, the committee is still seeking testimony from two Secret Service agents. Now to that government funding bill. As I record this, it is Monday, September 19th. In 11 days, that is one week from Friday, The end of the fiscal year will be upon us, and funding for the federal government will expire. You might think that prospect would have generated some sense of urgency in moving a continuing resolution through both houses and to the President for his signature. You would be wrong. Instead, two warring factions of Democrats are playing a game of high-stakes chicken over the contents of that bill. So far, neither side has blinked. On one side can be found Majority Leader Senator Chuck Schumer and West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin. On the other side can be found Vermont Socialist Bernie Sanders and 77 House Democrats. At issue is whether or not the continuing resolution will include in its language the text of an oil and gas permitting reform bill authored by Manchin that would help his state's fossil fuel dependent economy, which was the price of his agreement to vote. For that big-ass build-back Manchin spending bill, otherwise known increasingly laughingly as the Inflation Reduction Act. Schumer's position is simple. Agreeing to support and allow a vote on the oil and gas permitting reform bill was what it took to get Manchin to say yes to a bill Congressional Democrats desperately wanted. So by adding the oil and gas permitting reform to the continuing resolution, a so-called must-pass bill. Schumer is simply keeping the promise he made to Manchin, and keeping promises is important in Washington, especially for members of leadership. Sanders and the House Progressive Democrats who oppose the oil and gas permitting reform bill think that when their entire party agreed to a green energy future without fossil fuels, it made no sense to support any effort that would make it easier to extract energy from fossil fuels, and they were not part of any deal with Manchin. They strongly oppose the measure and have threatened to tank the entire CR if the oil and gas permitting reform measure is attached to it. As of this writing, Schumer is still adamant that the CR will contain the oil and gas permitting reform language. Sanders and the House progressives are just as adamant they will not vote for the bill if it contains the oil and gas permitting reform language. Of course, Republicans could provide the votes in either the House or Senate to offset the loss of votes from Democrats who don't support the oil and gas permitting reform. In fact, Manchin has said he thinks he'll need 20 Senate Republicans to provide votes to pass the measure in the upper chamber. But Republicans in the Senate do not seem eager to help Democrats out of this jam. In neither chamber does it appear that Republican votes will come riding to the rescue. Insiders say if the oil and gas permitting reform language stays in the CR, then the Senate will take up the CR first. If, however, Leader Schumer concludes that he cannot pass the bill through the Senate with the oil and gas permitting reform language attached to it, because Sanders and other Democrats refuse to vote for it, and there's no offsetting addition of Republican votes from the other side of the aisle, then the House would take up the legislation first. Meanwhile, there is a different issue that has engaged conservatives on the spending front. That is, the prospect of a short-term CR lasting only through mid-December that would allow a lame-duck Congress, still controlled by Democrats, to set the spending levels for the full fiscal year. Conservatives in both chambers oppose this strongly and are pushing for a CR that lasts into the new year, so the next Congress, that is, the one that's elected in November, which will presumably contain more Republicans, can set the full year spending levels. Jenny Beth's column this week was about just this effort. You can find it in the suggested reading. You can also find there an op-ed jointly authored by Republican Senators Rick Scott, Mike Lee, and Ted Cruz that makes the same point. We'll know more about this later this week. Stay tuned. Now to inflation. Last Tuesday, the Commerce Department, Bureau of Labor Statistics, released the inflation numbers for August, and it wasn't pretty. Rather than show inflation easing, as economists had expected, the numbers showed that inflation continues to be a problem. Overall costs were up 8.3% from one year earlier. Granted, that's lower than the inflation rate we saw in either June or July, but economists had expected the number to be even lower. Rising costs for food and shelter offset falling gas prices. Core inflation, that is the inflation rate for everything but energy and food, which are considered volatile, climbed much more than expected, up 0.6% from one month earlier and up 6.3% from a year earlier. Economists had expected that core inflation rate to be up by just 0.3% month over month. Instead, it was up double what was expected. Wall Street reacted negatively, very negatively. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped a calamitous 1,276 points, representing a 3.9% drop, while the S&P dropped 4.3% and the tech-heavy Nasdaq index fell by 5.2%. That was the worst trading day since June of 2020. This is all important because it figures into what the Federal Reserve will do at its meeting later this week. Wall Street had been hoping that if the inflation numbers continued to show a downward trend, then perhaps the Fed wouldn't feel a need to put a full, one, uh, a full 0.75% rate hike upon us, but with the numbers coming out the way they did, not only is that 0.75% rate hike locked in, the people who make their living by predicting these things are now suggesting they see a 10 percent chance the Fed might go even further and increase rates by a full percentage point. Rates for a 30-year mixed rate—I'm uh, sorry—a 30-year f- a fixed-rate mortgage hit 6.02 percent last week for the first time since 2008. That's 14 years ago. That's up from 2.65%, the lowest rate ever recorded for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, which is where they were in January 2021, right before Joe Biden took office. The inflation rate, of course, varies from place to place. Just because the national average last month was 8.3% doesn't mean it was 8.3% everywhere. The metro area with the worst inflation rate in the country was Phoenix, where about two-thirds of the voters in the state of Arizona live. The inflation rate there was 13% year-over-year. Atlanta had the second-highest inflation rate for major metro areas. Inflation there was up 11.7% year-over-year. The Atlanta metro area is home to about 60% of the statewide vote in Georgia. So Mark Kelly and Raphael Warnock The two Democrat Senators up for re-election right now in Arizona and Georgia are not happy campers. Now to that same-sex marriage bill. Senate Republicans discussed the possibility of a vote on a bill codifying same-sex marriage at their party lunch on Wednesday, but still could not come to agreement. So Senate leaders announced on Thursday that they would postpone a vote on a bill codifying same-sex marriage until after the election when they think they will be more likely to win the 10 Republican votes necessary to overcome an expected conservative filibuster. Now back to election law reform. House Democrats and a few House Republicans believe that one of the causes that led to the January 6th riot at the Capitol was the ambiguity of the Electoral Count Act, the ECA, an 1877 law that was enacted in the wake of the disputed presidential election of 1876 and the close contests of 1880 and 1884. Consequently, California Democrat Zoe Lofgren, who, in addition to sitting on the January 6th Committee with Liz Cheney, also chairs the House Administration Committee, has joined with Liz Cheney to offer a reform bill. As of Friday afternoon, the language of their Presidential Election Reform Act had not been submitted, so we don't know for sure what exactly is in that bill. But, a report issued earlier this year in Lofgren's committee included recommendations that the ECA be amended to raise the threshold necessary for challenging a state's electors. Under the current law, it takes one member of the House and one member of the Senate to raise an objection. Under the Lofgren Report's recommendations, that threshold would be increased to one-third of the members of each body. That would mean 145 members of the House would have to object, and 34 Senators would have to object. In addition, the Lofgren Report recommended that the Vice President should not preside over the joint session of Congress. It also recommended he should have no say over procedural matters. A similar ECA reform effort is underway in the Senate. Senate Rules and Administration Committee Chairwoman Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat of Minnesota, announced Friday that her committee would mark up a bipartisan ECA reform bill on September 27. The Senate reform bill would raise the threshold needed to object to a state's electoral votes from one member in each chamber to one-fifth of the members of each chamber. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer used Rule 14 last Tuesday to bypass the committee structure and bring directly to the floor S-4822, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse's so-called Disclose Act. For those keeping score at home, DISCLOSE is an acronym for Democracy is Strengthened by Casting Light on Spending in Elections. That's a mouthful. It's also a bunch of hooey. Senator Whitehouse's interest is not in disclosing donors for the purpose of strengthening democracy. His interest is in disclosing donors for the purpose of doxing them and shutting them up. He gave this away last year when speaking on a Facebook Live broadcast very much like this one to a group of left-wing activists, he explained, quote, What the bill would do is require anybody who's spending more than $10,000 to declare that it's them. My guess is that more than two-thirds of the big money just goes away. So disclosure isn't the end in itself, it's the means to a larger and more insidious end to shut down political speech White House opposes. This is literally anti-American. Our Founding Fathers were huge fans of anonymous political speech. Thomas Paine's Common Sense was originally published anonymously, and the essays promoting ratification of the Constitution, collected and published later as what we know as the Federalist Papers were jointly authored by James Madison, John Jay, and Alexander Hamilton, but because their authors wanted their arguments to be considered on their own merits, without consideration of who the author was, they published the essays under a pseudonym, Publius. While we're at it, the whole notion of protecting donor and membership information from forced publication has a long history in Supreme Court jurisprudence. The most famous ruling, of course, is the majority opinion in the 1958 NAACP v. Alabama lawsuit in which the Court ruled unanimously that the State of Alabama had no authority to require the State Chapter of the NAACP to turn over its membership lists. That, the Court ruled, was an unconstitutional infringement on the organization's members' First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. There was a more recent Supreme Court ruling defending donor privacy. In fact, it happened just last summer. During the current Congress, in the case of Americans for Prosperity v. Bonta, the Supreme Court ruled in a 6-3 decision that the state of California had no legal authority to require charitable organizations to hand over to state authorities the personal information of their top donors. If it sounds as if I am a bit more passionate about this particular issue than the others I discuss week in and week out with you, that's maybe because I am. Freedom of speech is something that's unique to the United States. There's no other country whose constitution protects its citizens' right to say what they want in the way they want or the way ours does. That right to free speech undergirds all our other rights and is to be defended at all costs. Now let's go to Elections Have Consequences, the Virginia edition. From 1993 to 2019, that is almost 30 years, Democrat governors had to work with Republican legislators in Virginia because Republicans held a majority in the lower chamber of the state's legislature, which happens to be the oldest legislative body in the Western Hemisphere. That changed following Virginia's 2019 elections, when Democrats recaptured the lower house for the first time since Bill Clinton's first year in office. Already in control of the Governor's mansion and the State Senate, Democrats in 2020 had the trifecta, control of the three levers of power. They didn't need Republicans. As long as they could keep their own caucus together, they could do anything they wanted. They used their new power to push through a number of laws they'd been denied for years. One of them was a law that required school districts to adopt policies consistent with a state document that had been created by the Democrat governor entitled Model Policies for the Treatment of Transgender Students in Public Elementary and Secondary Schools. That document denied parents their right to control their children's education. Last year, Republican Glenn Youngkin ran for governor in Virginia on a platform of restoring parental rights in education. Largely on the basis of that campaign platform, he became the first Republican to win a statewide race in Virginia since 2009. Elections have consequences. On Friday, Youngkin demonstrated the truth of that axiom when his administration issued new guidelines overturning the old policies and requiring that teachers obtain permission from students' parents before treating those students as transgender. How did that happen? Because on Thursday, the state's leading advocacy group for the LGBTQ plus community launched what it called its School Board Policy Tracker to, quote, provide parents, advocates, and students information on whether the school district has adopted the Virginia Department of Education's Model Policies for the Treatment of Transgender Students in Public Elementary and Secondary Schools, the document that had been issued by the previous Democrat Governor. Stop and think about that for a moment. The state's leading LGBTQ advocacy organization apparently was unaware that its side had lost the election last year. Why else would it kick over a hornet's nest? It launched and proudly promoted a new effort designed to highlight a policy that had been effectively voted down less than a year earlier, and it paid a price for its hubris. The new Youngkin-approved guidelines take a different tack. Quote, the phrase, transgender student, shall mean a public school student whose parent has requested in writing due to their child's persistent and sincere belief that his or her gender differs with his or her sex, that their child be so identified while at school, end quote, say the guidelines. Further, quote, parents are in the best position to work with their children to determine a. what names, nicknames, and or pronouns, if any, shall be used for their child by teachers and school staff while their child is at school, b whether their child engages in any counseling or social transition at school that encourages a gender that differs from their child's sex or c whether their child expresses a gender that differs with their child's sex while at school end quote as i said elections have consequences and virginia's leading lgbtq plus advocacy organization is run by nincompoops now to illegal immigration On Wednesday, two airplanes carrying about 50 passengers arrived in Martha's Vineyard, summer home of uber-rich liberal elites. The 50 passengers were Venezuelan migrants who had been flown from Texas, courtesy of the state of Florida and its $12 million migrant relocation effort. Upon learning of the arrival of the 50 Venezuelan migrants, the Martha's Vineyard Chamber of Commerce declared what it called a humanitarian crisis. The governor of Massachusetts activated the National Guard, and made arrangements to have the migrants removed from the island within 48 hours and relocated to Joint Base Cape Cod, a local military base. Outraged liberals excoriated Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, charging him with using the migrants as quote, pawns. Of course, video of the migrants' departure ceremonies, complete with the kind of hugs and kisses you give extended family members when you gather for the holidays, despite the fact that no one had even met these migrants before a day earlier, raised serious questions about just who was using the migrants as pawns. The best take on the episode came from Tucker Carlson, who devoted the first 19 minutes of his show to the episode. You'll find a link to the Carlson show in this week's suggested reading. Not to be outdone, Texas Governor Greg Abbott sent two busloads full of migrants from Texas to Washington, D.C where on Thursday morning they were dropped off outside the Vice President's residence at the Naval Observatory on Massachusetts Avenue just up the street from the British and South African embassies. Now to the Durham investigation. In a new court filing, Special Counsel John Durham has revealed that Igor Danchenko, a Russian national who helped former British intelligence operative Christopher Steele, put together his infamous Steele dossier on Donald Trump and who has been charged by Durham with lying to the FBI, was, in fact, a paid informant of the FBI from March 2017 through October 2020, that is, for virtually the entire duration of the Trump administration. Now to the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago follow-up. Early last Monday morning, that is one week ago, the Department of Justice filed papers with Federal District Judge Aileen Cannon of the Southern District of Florida indicating they would accept, as a special master in the case of the purloined Mar-a-Lago documents, a former Chief Federal Judge in New York who was one of the two men offered by Trump's lawyers as acceptable to them. His name? Raymond J. Deary. He was appointed to the Federal Bench by Ronald Reagan in 1986. I cannot help but say I find it odd that Deary was one of the two men offered by Trump's lawyers as a man who would be acceptable to Trump to serve as a special master in this case. Deary previously had involvement of a different sort with Trump. He signed off on the last of the four FISA court surveillance warrants against former Trump campaign volunteer Carter Page, a warrant that was later found to be invalid. On Thursday evening of last week, Judge Cannon announced she had chosen Deary for the task. In her order, Judge Cannon directed Deary to, quote, prioritize review of the approximately 100 documents marked as classified and papers physically attached thereto, unquote. Simultaneously, Judge Cannon refused the Department of Justice's request for permission to use the 100 documents with classified markings in their ongoing investigation. Judge Cannon ordered Deary to complete his review of the documents by November 30. She also ordered Trump to pay for Deary's review. The Department of Justice responded the following day, filing an appeal as promised of Judge Cannon's order with the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The appeal asked specifically that the Circuit Court overturn Judge Cannon's order preventing the DOJ from using the 100 documents with classified markings in its ongoing investigation and asked further that those documents not be submitted to the Special Master's review. The appeal did not, however, ask the Circuit Court to overturn Judge Cannon's decision to appoint a Special Master. Wrote the DOJ's lawyers in their appeal, quote, although the government believes the District Court fundamentally erred in appointing a Special Master and granting injunctive relief, The government seeks to stay only the portions of the law causing the most serious and immediate harm to the government and the public." The Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals currently has eleven judges. Six of them were nominated by Trump. Special Master Deary has set a hearing for Tuesday at 2 p.m. in New York, where both sides will meet him to launch the process. That's our Washington Report for this week. For the latest on the call to action, call to action this week is the same as it was last week, that is, call your member of the House of Representatives and your two United States Senators and urge all three members of Congress not to support a continuing resolution that expires in the middle of December. We don't want a lame duck Congress setting the full year spending for next fiscal year, especially not when we'll have a brand new Congress elected in November that could do that job just fine if we merely extended the current continuing if we extended the current or the, the continuing resolution beyond mid-November and into January or February, at which point the new Congress will be sworn in. So call to Congress, uh, call both senators, call your member of the House of Representatives, and urge them not to support a continuing resolution that expires in the middle of December. We don't want a lame duck Congress setting spending priorities for the next fiscal year. And that's our Washington Report and our call to action. That's it for this edition of Facebook Live. We'll see you next week.